Welcome, everyone, to episode 146 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're talking about another film that has been marketed as a big return to cinema that John M. Chu directed and Lin-Manuel Miranda created in the Heights. With me today, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right, Scott. It's been uh, quite a busy week at my job so far. Um, I don't not sure I could say much more than that, but uh, been working a, a couple of long days here and probably have one more in store for me tomorrow. But uh, yeah, no, uh, it was a good past weekend uh, with getting to go to the Alamo Draft House. I think I mentioned before that I was going to go see In the Heights at the Alamo Draft House. And um, yeah, we're we're becoming, I guess, Alamo shills on here with the amount that we've talked about it recently, I feel like. But uh, totally. it's the way to watch a movie if you're a movie fan, yeah. in, my, in my opinion. You know, I had the, a good crowd on a Saturday afternoon, good reactions and stuff to the movie, but not like yeah. overdoing it or anything to where it was distracting from the movie. You know, you get good food and drink um, and good service and everything. Uh, yeah, I wish I lived closer to it. It's like an hour and a half for me in Raleigh. Um, because it's saving you I, money though, not have to pay, not having to pay. It, it is that that is true because you know I would probably opt for that way way more over my uh, you know free AMC experience, you know totally. quote unquote free with stubs, but you know to my own detriment. I'm happy to continue talking about Alamo because in a couple of weeks I'm going to be going to see Blade Runner 2049 at the Alamo as part of their Harrison Ford exhibition for the month of June. I'm debating whether to go see Raiders of the Lost Ark as well just turned 40 which blew my mind you've got to see the fugitive i mean have you ever seen I've, it i've no i've seen the fugitive a couple of times yeah okay, um yeah. i wish i could see it but unfortunately i think that it's showing this week so i'm not i'm not near an alamo this week because i'm in my well end, guess but. what scott i don't care <laughs> yeah uh well as as alamo draft house is like little like pithy little one-liners below their movies he didn't kill his wife in case you in case you cared um <laughs> which was funny when i read that I thought that was really funny uh, but yeah, no, I'm excited about my future Alamo experiences. I did not go see In the Heights at the Alamo Draft House, but I did have a lively crowd as well on my Thursday night opening night showing. Uh, pretty, you know, as packed as a theater can be under the population at the time, at least the you know the yeah. um, the restrictions around capacity that existed. Um, we'll see when I return to New York City if those capacity restraints still exist, but it seems like they're going away. Uh, but a lively crowd had some cheering in between songs, which was nice. Reminded me a lot of, you know, something like Avengers Endgame, although it didn't quite get that crazy. I don't want to. I don't want to blow things really? up. Really? Of course, what my crowd was like. Um, but no, it, was, it definitely you reminded didn't me. Have more. an actual Carnival de Barrio breakout in the middle of the theater. <laughs> Scott, this is the film that the power should have gone out during. Uh, for your movie, yeah, rather, it's, rather than it's, Tenet. It's true, rather than Tenet, yeah. <laughs> that would have been thematically appropriate. Like, it happens right at that moment, you're like, well, mm-hmm. I guess we go home now. This is the movie. You know, real-life experience. But anyway, yeah, I, I had a lively crowd as well. It was very, very nice. I mean, I've been in theaters, um, you know, since we returned that were pretty crowded. Like, my Quiet Place Theater was pretty crowded. Other theaters that I've been in have been, you know, at, at pretty high capacity relative to, like, what they was possible for them to do. But 
no no movie yet has really spawned that experience um that lively experience of the crowd being really into it until in the heights which was a real treat you know regardless of the quality of the movie it's always really nice to have that sort of atmosphere in the theater totally i feel like i i was almost there with cruella but i fully got there with this movie. there were a couple moments of cruella like when yeah when, that's uh, true. Emma thompson like what is it she does to the waiter she like Hits him in the face with something. Um, yeah, maybe. Pops yeah. the champagne bottle in his face. That's oh, yeah, that was he pops good. the champagne bottle in his face. That that got a rise out of the crowd when I saw Cruella. How big was your crowd for that? Because I, so I saw that also on a Thursday night, but it was like a ten. It was like super late. I saw so it, it on Memorial Day Monday, like afternoon. So it was pretty crowded. Like you know, okay, we, cool. Everyone yeah. was off work and school and stuff. So yeah, my theater wasn't super crowded. I actually saw it in the same theater that I saw it in the Heights in. So the exact same theater, um, but it was like it was pretty less. It was like much less crowded. That definitely got some laughs at the crowd as well. But I think just because yeah. the number of people, it was like really hard to get it loud. Um, yeah, to get real reactions. But yeah, there were some definitely some some good moments in Corolla as well. But uh, yeah, in the heights is what we're here to talk about. We've already started kind of talking about the experiences we had. So why don't we just kind of dig right into the movie? Uh, as kind of expected for people who know what in the heights is, in the heights shines a spotlight on the Latinx community in the uptown New York neighborhood of Washington Heights. Its central figure, Usnavi, played by original Hamilton cast alum, Anthony Ramos, owns a bodega that also employs Usnavi's little cousin, Sonny, played by Gregory Diaz IV. And Usnavi services all of his fellow Dominican, Cuban, Puerto Rican, Costa Rican, et cetera, neighbors on the block, including local car company employee, Benny, played by Corey Hawkins, car company owner, Kevin, played by Jimmy Smits, local neighborhood, Abuela, Claudia, played by Olga Martinez, and the salon ladies, Daniela, Carla, Kuka, and most importantly to his Navi, Vanessa, played by Melissa Barrera. And their salon is moving to the Bronx due to gentrification in Washington Heights. When Kevin's daughter, Nina, played by Leslie Grace, arrives home from Stanford on the same day, Usnavi receives news that his late father's business in the Dominican Republic is up for sale. The full cast is set, and each and every member has to navigate choosing between the community they've already built in Washington Heights and the life they dreamed to one day have, all while set to the lyrical rap of Lin-Manuel Miranda's iconic style. Scott, did In the Heights satisfy your desire for a communal theatrical experience in the vein of something we used to get pre-COVID times, or was it a midsummer letdown proving that not all dreams can be realized? Yeah, Scott, you know, my excitement for this one has been building um, for a while now. Of course, you know, this is one that was supposed to come out last year, um, held over. Uh, to this summer. And, you know, I've, I've always sort of been aware of this musical as long as I've been aware of Hamilton, but haven't really dove deep on it um, like I did with Hamilton. I knew a few songs going into this one. I knew the opening number, 96,000, um, you know, some of the bigger numbers in the movie. Um, but I wasn't really familiar with the story or anything like that of, of In the Heights. But, you know, the trailer came out. The trailer looked great. Some early reviews started trickling in. They were very positive. Um, and, you know, I was convinced that, uh, you know, this was going to be maybe the movie of the summer for me. And, uh, yeah, I think it probably will end up being the movie of the summer. I mean, you know, there's still we still got a ways to go. We still got a couple months here and a couple others that I have my eye on. But, um, yeah, this was a, a fantastic experience. Um, and I say fantastic experience because I think that's really what made it for me. The movie itself is very, very good. It is not perfect. I, I, I don't think it's a perfect movie, but I think it is very, very good. 
But the experience, again, of being back, seeing it in a theater with the right crowd, that's what elevates it to me to, you know, uh, elite five, you know, five out of five star movie to, you know, rely on letterbox ranking scale. And yeah, you know, it's, it's probably the best big screen musical that I can think of. Like, I, I don't know what the last one that I enjoyed this much was. I mean, it's, it's been a long time since there's been one um, this good. I mean, you know, obviously there's been some that people have enjoyed like the greatest showman. Um, but uh, you know, I don't, I don't think uh I mean, I can't say I haven't seen the movie, but I'd be surprised if it's as good as as In the Heights is. I think uh, John M. Chu um, shows that he is very, very gifted director when it comes to spectacle. That's kind of the word that I, uh, you know, think of now when I think of his movies. Um, and you know that he's he's not a stranger to to this. Like this is exactly new. You know, if you look at some of his early films, he did like a GI Joe movie. He did a couple of the Step Up sequels. Um, which obviously came in handy here, right, with all of the choreography and big, like, large-scale dance sequences that go on um, at multiple points in the movie. Um, and he's done concert uh, you know, He did Justin Bieber's, like, concert film. Yeah, um, but he's really come into his own here with these last couple of movies um, with Crazy Rich Asians, which was a big hit back in 2018, and now this movie, which hasn't quite gotten there yet as far as, you know, financial success. But I'm hoping that it will with good word of mouth. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful movie in the sense, in the same sense that crazy rich Asians was in the way that it just like, it depicts so many diverse, I mean, it, it, you know, every, every character in the movie is pretty much racially diverse. Um, and you know, not non-white, um, you know, you alluded to it there in your description, but we have people from Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Costa Rica. Um, we have, you know, Corey Hawkins character who's African-American, um, it's great to see a movie of this size and scale, um, where none of the people looked like me, at least that's my opinion. Um, and you know, I, I think there's something to be said too, for the fact that this movie and crazy rich Asians for the most part are very like joyous, exuberant experiences. Um, and you know, I, we're used to seeing, I feel like when this many, uh, you know, racially diverse people are in a cast, um, you know, perhaps the subject matter can get a little more uh, serious. Maybe it's about the oppression of these people or, you know, racism, things like that, um, which obviously those films have their value and those stories absolutely need to be told as well. Um, I'm certainly not saying that, but it's also great to see movies like this where, um, you know, people from these backgrounds are just allowed to, you know, be joyous, be exuberant, um, and you know, just kind of celebrate life on on screen because that's kind of what this movie is about. Like, it's hard to describe the plot in a way because this is actually you know what I would I would put this in my you know favorite subgenre of films of uh, you know no plot all vibes uh, for the most part. I mean, you know, there's there's a little bit threading uh, you know the these uh, the narrative together you know from scene to scene, but uh, for the most part, I think we're kind of just. Um, following each of these characters and their very specific dreams, but more importantly, just how they interact with each other as a community. The community, the family of Washington Heights is so important to what makes this movie special. Um, and those are the moments to me, which, you know, are, are the best in the movie. Like, you know, when they're just at a dinner at someone's house and just, you know, vibing again, or, um, you know, these, yeah. These, you know, some of these big musical numbers, obviously, when everyone is coming together and 
expressing themselves through song. Um, it's just, you know, it's just one of those movies you just have a big smile on your face the whole time. And, you know, there's some moments that get a little more dramatic, but for the most part, um, it's, it's an uplifting, high-spirited film. Um, it's pretty much exactly what I wanted this to be. The music is great. Um, it, it has that Lin-Manuel Miranda style. I don't think that on the whole of the songs are as memorable as Hamilton, certainly not. Um, but I like the style. I like some of the more like story-based songs in, in the, the movie, and I think they're well choreographed, and they all match the vibe of the movie. They keep the good vibes going, even if they're not like going to get stuck in your head after. Um, and that's yeah. just ultimately what this movie was. It's good vibes, um, and that makes it a perfect summer movie. Yeah, honestly, I mean, I watched I watched this film you know, five, six days ago now almost, and I don't think any of the songs really have stuck in my head at all. But that hasn't ta- that hasn't taken away any from the experience. I think I totally agree. The way you described, you know, John M. Chu's film, you know, at least his last two films, I think is as joyous. I think is spot on. I almost think of like them to kind of co-op some of the other words you said while you were describing. I think that I think of his films as well, like celebrations of culture, celebrations of life totally. um, that most people or at least white people probably aren't as familiar with or aren't as exposed to. And even people of other you know, races and ethnicities that aren't the ones being shown aren't going to be as familiar with. And I think that that's, you know, it, it makes him a good match for this particular musical, I think as well. And, and there's just something so different about it, right? Like, you know, for for as many people as like Lin Manuel Miranda, like if you like Hamilton and you like Lin Manuel Miranda, like you're probably gonna like going and watching this movie. It's just the reality of it. Like yeah. the vibes that you get from Hamilton, or like the vibes that that stick with people um, from that from that play or from that musical, from that experience. I think it's the same vibes that you get out of this. If not, in, you know, in some ways, it's obviously less serious in, in, in a lot of ways than Hamilton because it ultimately is about. Some more dramatic topics, I guess, at the end of the day. Um, Hamilton, not not in the Heights. But yeah, I think it's just really good vibes. It, it seems like a really perfect summer film. Um, and I think that like, I don't know, I think the industry like did the film a little dirty, to be honest, because I think that it really set this film up for like, kind of like the Birds of Prey conversation that we had last year when like, I'm not going to sit here and say that, that in the Heights was as successful as Birds of Prey was last year because Birds of Prey still made like 50 million opening weekend domestically, but people were like, "Oh, it's like a total flop or whatever." I'm like, "Is yeah. it really a flop though? Like, is 11 million at the box office post quarantine for this film? Like, is it really a when flop it also not? debuted on HBO Max at the same time too? I mean, I think you can't discount that being a factor because I know I know multiple people yeah. who watched it via HBO Max this weekend. Yeah, I'm curious to see what HBO, well, like what Warner Brothers comes out and says about the viewing statistics to try to count, like to try to like, you know, moderate the discussion around it being yeah, not as successful as the box, the box office. office numbers being. Yeah, because the truth is that I'm not sure how, like, I still think and like, I think it, of course, it definitely affected the box office success of this movie on opening weekend. I don't know if it would have changed the story, though, for the movie overall in terms of its like, overall gross the reality is this movie needs to make like 200 million dollars to be profitable and it made like 12 million this weekend and so i i don't think that you would have seen like 10x the amount of people at the box office right like this is just a this was just a movie that got a lot of heavy investment and thank god that it did and the production value was as high as it was because it's such a joy um to see on the screen uh on a big screen with the big sound you know the surround sound the amplified bass etc everything like the experience is so 
is such a huge amplifier uh, for this film. That's not to say you can't enjoy this film at home on your TV on HBO Max, but I certainly think that I got a huge, you know, theater bump watching this movie because I would echo what you said earlier about this film's not perfect. You know, this film, not not that not having a plot makes makes your film inferior in any way whatsoever. There's some films that certainly. I really, really enjoy that don't have very much plot. I just think the plot that is there is like when you really sit down and think about it, like isn't very well isn't like that great, to be honest. Like it's not when you just like really sit down and think about the plot and how it threads, like I'm not sure it tells certain, a very certain aspects of it. That yeah, I do, there are I so many different mention, threads. Yeah. yeah, there's so many different threads that I think you can pull out of this movie because there are like seven different characters um, that the film is ultimately following. So it's like hard to really navigate that well, especially when like ultimately you're not really trying to navigate the plot really well in this movie, I don't think. Uh, that's certainly not what the film was setting out to do. So I think that it, it has a battle to fight there on, on that front. But yeah, I just think this film is just so much fun because the vibes you get from it, the vibes it puts off and the celebration that it kind of puts the audience through while it's while it's going is just so great. And like the real spectacle of some of the big musical numbers. I mean, the opening number in the Heights. I mean, it's such a shame, honestly, that that they released uh, as much as I enjoyed watching the first eight minutes of In the Heights on YouTube before. Like, it's such a shame. Like the best shot in the movie is like in in the first eight minutes, the window, the window yeah. reflection scene like shot is just like such a good shot oh yeah glorious um it's it's so disappointing that my first experience looking at that was was on my computer screen <laughs> as opposed to yeah you know, the massive screen at the dolly this is the I world that we live in i know and i did it to myself right like i didn't have to watch the first eight minutes of the movie on youtube but i, I couldn't help myself i guess um like there are other great shots in it too like i think the, the pool the sort of like the pool scene the ninety six thousand song scene i mean that that thing is a real is a real spectacle Which, which, by the way, was in addition to the movie. There wasn't a pool. the The pool was not part of the musical yeah, number of ninety six thousand. Yeah, well, yeah, it would have been hard to pull off, I guess. But I thought a very successful addition, in my opinion. Yeah, it just really like. I mean, it's a great number to begin with, but then it just comes alive when you know you see it in this whole. Yeah, absolutely. I, I to the point where I think I'd, it'd almost be off putting if I, you know, if. It, I think there's still some like traveling performance of In the Heights that might exist at least before COVID. But like if you saw that then and you seen the movie, you'd be like, oh man, it's kind of a bummer to not have the whole scene probably because uh, it is such a cool spectacle to witness. And I just think a lot of that spectacle carries this thing so far. Um, and I think that this, it just really kind of rides on the good vibes that it sort of trades in. Uh, the performances are all really solid, if not spectacular. Um, and yeah, I just don't think that I have too many complaints about this film. This film like does a lot of things really well. It does some things okay, but it doesn't really do anything wrong in my book. And I think that that carries it a long way. And even if this is not a movie that I think is going to be in my conversation for best film, like in like a best film or a best actor or a best act, whatever, insert um, category at the end of the year, I think it's going to be one of those experiences that I really appreciated having this, this year, especially. But, you know, you, I think that would be true for any year as well. Yeah. All right, Scott, so why don't we dump in? I, I, like, look, we could talk about Anthony Ramos specifically, but this really, you know, he's billed as the lead, I think, in this movie, and fair enough, because he is the main character. But it, this really does feel like kind of a true ensemble piece uh, to go along with, you know, Melissa Barrera, Les, Leslie Grace, Corey Hawkins, um, maybe a few others you could throw in as well, um, Olga Martinez, et cetera, Scott. So I just want to ask you, like, who do you want to talk about? Um, I mean, 
you know, it is, like you said, it's a true ensemble piece. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of hard to pick out standouts even because I think everyone is pretty excellent. And, you know, they they obviously chose people who I think were musically gifted um, before Definitely. they chose, um, you know, actors, which like yeah, I have always said this. And, you know, you can go back and, and listen on the podcast to me saying this. Got the receipts. Movie musicals are almost always ill-conceived if you're going to use Hollywood actors as, you know, the the cast. Because ultimately, you know, there, no one is going to tell you that you're going to have a better experience, um, you know, sitting in a theater and watching something that was probably closer to three hours on stage, you know, compressed down to an hour and 45 minutes, two hours um, of a musical in which Hollywood actors are singing the songs, as opposed to going to a theater, going to Broadway, um, you know, and seeing trained professionals um, yeah. do the show as it was meant to be done. Um, so that's, I think, I just feel like a lot of mus- movie musicals just start on a wrong foot for that yeah. very fact. But clearly they're going for something different here. They're going, they're, you know, they're doing it exactly right here, which is that they're getting really talented performers, not necessarily people who are in the stage show. Now, Anthony Ramos, of course, was in Hamilton, um, but I'm not sure if he's been in any productions of In the Heights. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah I think I like, think he's, so. like all these people are young, right? Like they aren't old enough to even yeah. have been in In the Heights. Like this yeah. is, a, it went to Broadway in 2007, I think, or something yeah. like that, 2008, 2009. Around then, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, but but I mean, they're all very talented. Obviously, Corey Hawkins really impressed me because he is someone we've seen before, you know, straight out of yeah. Compton. He played Dr. Dre, um, obviously showed off a little bit of musical ability there. Um, and, you know, just some other um, projects that we've seen him in. Uh, he had that one scene in Black Klansman where he was really electric as Kwame Ture. Yeah. Um, I think the guy's he was 24. Okay, I think this proved it. <laughs> oh, that's right. He was. Um, yeah. I think this proves that I, you know, I'm, I'm really impressed. I think he has tons of charisma, even though he's not, you know, the main character. I feel like his story is a little bit more. Yeah. Unfortunately, his character of, is kind of a throwaway character, unfortunately, like relative. To the rest yeah. Of the I mean, I, I think he's able to make it more than that because of his performance and his charisma is so strong. But um, yeah, yeah, I've heard that in the musical, the romance between him and Nina is more fleshed out. Um, but, you know, it's natural that in a movie with, again, in, the musical's probably closer to three hours, I don't know, but, um, you know, they probably had to, to shave it down some. But the other person who I think is really good and actually is from the stage production is Olga Meredith, I believe is her name. Um, oh, did I say Martinez earlier? Abuela. I think guy. you did. Yeah, it, yeah, is, it is Meredith, yeah. Olga Meredith, um, very, very good um, as... Abuela, you know, this this is a character that we've seen before, um, but I don't know. She brings a real warmth and authenticity to um, that Abuela character that pro- some of that probably comes from having played this role on the, you know, the stage. This she is probably, a, you know, yeah. labor of love for her. Yeah. Um, but and she, yeah, you, and you she was really... nominated for a Tony. I don't think she won, but she was nominated. Yeah, the musical did win, actually, for best musical when it was nominated at the Tonys, but um, yeah, I don't know if she, uh, yes, she, she probably nominated. didn't win, she, but she didn't win. She was nominated. Yeah. But you know, you can, you can really feel that in her few scenes. I think she, she makes the most of um, her few scenes and, and, you know, it, it really, I think makes an impact as like the character who is 
tying all of this neighborhood together, right? Like that's kind of the role that she's meant to play. And I think she plays it well because, you know, she is the abuela of the neighborhood, even though she's not any of their actual abuelas. Um, you know, he, she, uh, she, she, she is just like this constant person who's there and invites everyone into her home and has these dinners and things like that. And really is kind of a uniting force um, for the neighborhood. And I think she captures that really well. You know, early on, she has a nice scene talking to Usnavi uh, about, you know, we got to show the world that we're not invisible, uh, which, you know, that she has a nice little monologue there. And then she gets her own song um, where she kind of talks about her backstory um, and how she, you know, came to Washington Heights in the first place. And I think that's definitely one of the more emotional scenes um, in the movie, one of the more serious scenes, especially because of what happens right after it. But, um, you know, we, we, we don't have to get into spoilers yet. But um, I think uh, I think she's excellent. But the whole cast is really good. Anthony Ramos has a lot of charisma as well as Usnavi. Um, I'll be interested to see where his career goes from here. Uh, da- I think, uh, you know, Daphne Ruben Vega and Stephanie Beatriz, a couple other names that people might recognize. Um, they are fun as the salon ladies, um, a couple of the salon ladies. The, you know, one of the best sequences in the movie is the the Carnival del Barrio is the name of the song. And um, Daphne Ruben Vega is kind of, her character, Danny, is the one who kind of gets that going and really, you know, steps out into this like alleyway where a bunch of people are kind of um, crowded around a little despondent and really, you know, rouses everyone into action, and you know, into this big musical number. And I think she she does a great job of, you know, tearing into that scene. Um, so yeah, a lot of, it's, it's a strong cast all over the board. Like I said, they took the wrong approach or they took the right approach of, uh, of going for the, the musically talented people, um, before, you know, picking the big names. And I think it paid off in a big way here. Um, and you know, big names, I got, uh, you know, I'll give a shout out to Jimmy Smiths as well. I think he's, he's good and he has a nice singing voice. Yeah, I mean, you think about it for the most part. I mean, Jimmy Smith's maybe like the one exception, and maybe Corey Hawkins you could throw in too. But like the rest of them are either known for being singers, in the case of Leslie Grace, or like Daphne Rubin Vega, Anthony Ramos, Olga Maradiz. They're known for working, doing musicals. Like they're known for doing mm-hmm. musicals. So to that point that you sort of made at the outset, I, I totally agree. And then, you know, we haven't even talked. I can't believe that you didn't say Lin Manuel Miranda was the standout. I mean, the guy. <laughs> absolutely tears up his like three scenes you know i i I will say like at least he he seems to be listening to some criticism right because i think that there's a lot of people well i don't know if i'll say a lot but there's definitely uh there's some people people out there who feel that hamilton the only thing holding hamilton back from being even better than it is is his performance as hamilton if somebody else was in that role then it would be even more spectacular than it already is um here he obviously played Usnavi right on Broadway. He was the the lead role, but he has not cast himself in the lead role in the movie. Um, instead, I mean, he's that got himself shaved ice. Yeah, that'd have been like Gary. Yeah, Oldman I mean, yeah, with the age thing Oldman's. now. But, but uh, regardless, he doesn't even make himself a, an important character in the movie. He just, you know, he's in five minutes of the movie as the guy who sells shaved ice. Like you said. Yeah, the Paragua man. Um, yeah, look, I think that. Who you said were standouts, I think that makes sense. If I had to go to Olga, if I had to point one to actual standout, who I could say, oh, man, I think that this person really left a mark, I think it would be Olga Merides. I don't think any of the other cast members set themselves apart from any of the others, but that's not a, a com- that's not a commentary on 
you know, the lack of quality in the performances. I think that Anthony Ramos is just as good as you'd expect he'd be, you know, being such you know a relatively minor character in Hamilton. But I think even in that, leaving a pretty, you know, a pretty, you know, clear mark on the performance. Yeah, of being a minor Hamilton character in. Yeah, a minor character in the sense that he doesn't have a lot of screen time. A mi- uh, a major character in like the importance that he plays in the story. I feel like, and he has to absolutely uh, you know, do a lot in his few moments. And I think he does do. Yeah, I forget his first act character's name because it's one of the people from the bar. But he plays Hamilton's son. Um, I think he plays John act. Lawrence, right? Who that gets killed right. in the in the first act. Um, does, yeah, I mean he doesn't Hamilton, he doesn't play um, he doesn't play Lafayette or Lafayette, so it's not him. But no, that's um, Dudley. Yeah. Anyway, so I think he, you know, in a, in a cast of a, you know, an original Hamilton cast that feels in, in many ways like just so iconic for all their roles. I think Anthony Ramos is able to like punch, you know, punch it, punch his fair weight, if not, if not above his weight in that cast. I mean, you think about, I mean, obviously Lin-Manuel Miranda and um, Leslie Odom Jr. and David Diggs, all these people who I think are basically just like so iconic for, for being in those things. I think he's also able to do that, take that sort of recognition that he got in Hamilton and a very effectively play this role of Usnavi in a way that feels like he's right at home playing a lead character. Again, I don't know if the movie really plays out or the film, the film version here plays out in a way where it's so clear that Usnavi is like the center of attention. Um, and again, I don't know how that necessarily translates to the, the original musical either, but I think he fits, you know, he fits right in, in that character. And he felt like he was the right person to play that. It'd have been really weird if Lin Manuel Miranda had played played that role. Forget the age difference; I think it still would have been really weird for him to play uh, play that role. But maybe it's hard to move past the age difference. I think Melissa Barrera. We haven't really talked about her yet, but she's. I think she's like marketed as being this like really important character. I think she's good. She's certainly good. I don't know if she does anything to really convince me that she could like really extend beyond. Like you talked about how Corey Hawkins to you, I mean, that kind of makes it clear. In this film, and I think that there's one scene in particular where he really does does his damnness to prove to you that he's got like he's really got what it takes. Um, on the scene where on the side of the building, uh, on the fire escape and whatnot, I just yeah. think that Melissa Barrera doesn't have a moment, or at least doesn't take advantage of any moment she might have. I think that maybe the bar scene and the blackout, there's like a, a chance for her to really stand out um, at the club. She doesn't quite manage to do it. Um, I'm curious to see what she'll do in the future. I don't know if she really looked that you know, it really convinced me that she's going to be able to do more or, or play a lead in a future big budget film. That said, I think she's a convincing enough Vanessa. I just wish there could be like a little bit more conviction in the performance. It felt like, I don't know if it was necessarily the writing or if it was the performance, but it just felt like it, there wasn't as much oomph behind a lot of it. I don't know if you if you felt that, Scott. It didn't feel like there's the same level of of conviction to his like yeah. the performances from Anthony Ramos or Corey Hawkins or Jimmy Smith or Olga Maradiz. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I, I was satisfied with their performance, but I can that see where fine. you're coming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I think I can see where I can see where you're coming from uh, on that. I, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know that I would am immediately also like. Oh, yeah. you know, she's great. Hit like let's put her in five things next year. But um, I, mm-hmm. I thought she played the role well. Yeah, th- that's what it's hard to know, right? Because I think she's the she's this character even even more so maybe than any of the other characters that just really feels torn between two places. I mean, that's true for like Usnavi. It's true for Usnavi. Uh, 
yeah, it's true for Usnavi. It's true for um, Nina as well. She's very like these characters are all torn between multiple places. I just felt like I got more of that, and I just got like this sort of like I don't know distance from this character. But I don't know if it's it's some element of like she doesn't really have right this song. At least I, I mean, I'm sure she does, but. It, she has the, the song where she goes down to the apartment in Lower Manhattan and talks to the person. But th- that's just, like, not as impactful as, like, Nina's song or, you know, Usnavi's opener where he sort of narrates the beginning in the Heights or even, you know, any of these other songs um, that sort of are dedicated to these individual characters and tell you and show you how they're torn. It's there early, but it's it's kind of like this sandwich between, if I'm remembering the order of songs correctly, it's sort of like sandwiched between that sort of opening number, which I think was quickly followed by, um, you know, a couple of Nina's numbers, which the was the first. The Salon Lady song, I think, comes right after that, right? Um, yeah, and I just Nina think that, that to the Salon, yeah, yeah, because Nina has the what the the I think it's Breathe right before right before she right right yeah when she's like walking down the street or whatever. Yeah, and then and then there's the Salon song because that's when she goes mm-hmm. to the Salon, and then that's when Vanessa takes her lunch break goes downtown has her song but when she comes back that's the ninety six thousand song so it's like sandwiched right. between these like huge set pieces um mm-hmm. and i think that it's it, unfortunately for me it kind of got lost in the mix and i think that this is the type of musical that really requ- like because there are so many characters that have you know relatively equal weights in the narrative it really relies on these individual dedicated numbers to i think to have that sort of early impact for you to care about them moving forward. And I just didn't get the same feeling from that. And I, I don't want to put that all on Melissa Pereira. It might just be a function of the character itself, but yeah, that, that's kind of my experience with that. But otherwise, like, I, I think that's, again, that's not too much of a complaint because I think across the board, it's still really good to, to great. Yeah. Moving on from that, I would like to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the, the narrative construction that we've been talking about. And we can talk about spoilers here as well. You know, the last musical that I think I don't we didn't talk about it on the podcast, but it feels like the last musical that that's in like pop popular culture was Cats, right? Which is a yeah. film that had a lot of characters. It didn't it had a plot that was um I don't know, illegible, for lack of a better word. Um had to look up what the plot was afterwards. Um that wasn't just a factor of the drinks. Uh, oh, fo- followed it ABC. It was easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um and, and I think in some ways, it might shock you to, to like, maybe to think about it loud, but I think that's been this issue where, like, I think, like, the plot ultimately, like, yes, obviously, the actual individual plots themselves are quite different in what's happening, but, like, the notion of, like, how much plot is involved in the story feels, like, very similar. There's lots of characters that you sort of get these individual pieces about, and, you know, essentially, the film is about this cross-section of all these characters having all these different experiences. And... I wonder, I think that we both think that this, that In the Heights did it better than Cats did. I think that goes almost without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Not enough, I will say that not enough heavy side layers in this movie. <laughs> not not enough uh, Idris Elba ripping off his clothes. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'm curious to see, to, for you to, to hear from you how effective you think the choice or the device of Again, having a, a film that's pretty light on plot, I'd say for the first half to two thirds of the film, only to sort of leave the sort of heavy plot lift towards the last, you know, third to half of the film. Do you think that works well for it? I think for the most part it does. And again, I am biased towards these types of you no know, plot all vibes sure. movies because yeah, um, 
a lot of my favorites fall in that camp. But um, I, I think, you know, the, a lot of this movie is about understanding why these people would choose to stay in this particular place. Right. Um, and yeah. I think in order to do that, we have to be able to just connect to that community. And I personally feel that um, the easiest way to do that is to have these more sort of free form sequences where you're just like experiencing the people and their, um, you know, relationships with each other rather than having, you know, specific moments and plot beats and everything laid out, you know, storyboarded out, whatever. Um, I do think though, you know, when you have this many characters, when you're trying to tell this many stories, some things are going to get lost you know, in the mix or, you know, somebody's going to be given short shrift. And I do feel like if I had to point to one thread um, that, you know, gets short shrift, like I was saying, I think with Nina and her father, this whole subplot that starts off really strong, like this is going to be a major element of the movie, right? Nina has come back from Stanford and um, she doesn't have the finances to return. It seems Um, there's kind of a, a disagreement between her and her father about he's saying, Oh, I'll sell my business to, you know, pay the whatever needs to be paid. And she's kind of like, no, you don't need to do that. But you don't know. Like, you know, there's a tension. uh, There's a like genuine tension of like, well, does she actually, uh, you know, is she just saying that because she doesn't want her father to sell her his business or does she actually not want to go back? Right. Does she actually want to stay here in Washington Heights? Does she actually feel like there's nothing left for her out there on the West coast? And it all sort of comes to the head at that dinner scene, right, at Abuela's house. Um, And there's a big disagreement. And then it just feels like that just kind of goes away and fizzles out. And by the end of the movie, Nina has decided to stay, of course. But we don't understand. uh, She's going back. She's going back. (laughs) Sorry. She's decided to go back. But we don't really see like the moment when that happens. Like we don't understand exactly how we got from that dinner scene. Right. Where there seems like, you know, again, there's a genuine moment of disagreement that like you know it's a climactic moment but then it just like we skipped ahead we, we it's like we missed a couple of things yeah. um, that, i mean and you know are the probably there in the musical yeah you say that but i i wonder i do wonder because yeah, i think not, that huh? the the to get into full spoilers here although we kind of did get into spoilers there i suppose just talking about where nina does end up but the death of abuela i think that is sort of meant to be a sort of like flag you know flag in the ground kind of thing where like it makes it gives everyone perspective like literally everyone in the neighborhood perspective Mm -hmm. and i think that perspective for nina is that you know she should you know still pursue this dream of getting out you know in quotation marks right yeah to an extent and live that through her through herself i don't think that that is well explored well enough i told i i absolutely agree with your line of thinking but i think that's what that that's what's supposed to get you from point a to point b yeah i i just think I mean, I, I, I guess I get it. I, I, I uh, you know, I, I get what you're saying. I think for me also, though, it's just like that is not the more interesting direction that that story thread could have gone in. I think. Like, Agreed. I, Absolutely. I would have been more interested in like her deciding to stay again and like being like, hey, I didn't make it. I think that would have been a cool direction for the the plot to go for her to, you know, sort of admit defeat or whatever. Um, but I, I also think, you know, in, in some sense, number one, right, like we learned that she's experienced some racial prejudice and stuff out there. So it, it wouldn't be, you know, necessarily a great decision for them to be like, oh, I'm giving up because I, um, you know, experienced some some hardship out there. I don't know that that's necessarily the message that they would want to send. 
Um, and, you know, the other thing, right, is that Usnavi, again, has a similar story arc of, oh, am I going to stay here in Washington Heights? Am I going to go back to the Dominican Republic? And ultimately, he decides to stay, right? So maybe to avoid, you know, everyone having the same arc, sort of, um, it may, you know, it, it makes sense for Nina to to decide to go. But again, I, I do think it would have posed some more interesting questions, um, maybe, yeah. if... Um, you know, this, this person decided to stay, right? There's, there's all this pressure on her from everyone in Washington Heights. Cause you know, she's like the one person who made it out. She comes back and that's what her whole song uh, is about, which I thought was well done. Um, you know, about how everyone's, Hey, welcome back. You know, how school, all this stuff. And she can't really tell them the truth. Um, I thought that was very well done. Um, and this but, big moment where she then yeah. does tell the truth in the salon when she's, you know, yeah. she's getting so many questions and she does kind of buckle under that pressure. And I like, totally agree. I think, I think, <laughs> exactly. That was really fun. That was a really good. Scene. I mean, that, that salon sequence is, is mm-hmm. so, so much fun. Um, yeah, I think I think I totally agree because it, it, fe- it almost feels like in the first third of the movie, like that's like her. She is actually what the movie is about. It's kind of like, yes, it's kind of being the story is kind of being told through Snobby's eyes at first. But then it pivots and it feels like this like big, this big sort of plot element or plot driver is is really all around nina that's what it really feels like and then yeah it just kind of disappears in the last in the last act completely which was such a bummer i think because there's so much potential but i think that's that's almost the the narrative corner that this you know the the, that the plot sort of writes itself into in this film is that you have all these characters who are when you really boil it down to it they're all just deciding whether to stay or to leave Right. And so it ultimately makes things feel so obviously that's more drastic than others for like, it's probably the most drastic for Usnavi, who's like literally leaving the country with no plans to return. It's, and then there's like a, a sliding scale of, then there's Nina who's going to Stanford, but could come back. She, you know, she's just going for four years or whatever, three, three years now, whatever it might be. Then there's like Vanessa who's going downtown. And then um, there's like this other salon ladies who are going to the Bronx. And, you know, Benny so so maybe forth. wants to follow Nina out there, you know, yeah, I mean, Benny, Benny is like the one person who it's like not super clear what they're what like what his. I mean, I, it feels like his dream is to be with Nina, right? But that's like not super flushed out. I think, unfortunately, for his for his sake. And then there's Sunny, who's like the one character who we haven't talked about very much. That it, you know, you mentioned, and I think it's true for a, it was true for me. I got a, a pretty strong emotional reaction out of out of Abuela's sort of big moment, big scene. Um, I have mixed emotions that that's like the, the plot direction that it went. Cause it's just like such a bummer. <laughs> Good characters die like that. Um, real bummer, but I guess that's life. Yeah. There's really no like warning that it's coming. It just all of a sudden happens. Yeah. Like you, but, you, you, know, get, you get, you get the direction it's headed in like a minute. It's a blackout. It's really hot. You know, I guess it makes sense. She wasn't taking her medication. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever, whatever reason they gave or whatnot. But Which, anyway, again, like, that that feels like that's a real detail right there. Oh, like this sure, person yeah. would not take their medication in real. That that would totally be what this old lady would be like. Totally agree. I'm not saying it's unrealistic. It was just like a no, bummer that, that yeah. it happened. Um, but I think the other emotional hit in this movie for me is actually it's Sunny's story and you know this this whole narrative, which I'll be really honest, I did like did not pick up on in the first scene between Usnavi and his father. Like, I, I don't know if I was just being like super dumb, but like, it's supposed to be clear from that scene that they are undocumented immigrants. Um, I didn't pick up on that. Maybe my mind had wandered in sort of the downtime of that scene felt kind of stupid afterwards. You were, you were, um, uh, you glazed over by the star power of Mark Anthony playing uh Sonny's yeah. father. 
you're not wrong. All those tattoos and the offer of a beer at 9 a.m. Man, it really got me good. But I, I think that when you know when they when he when it does be, you know continue when that thread is picked back up sort of in the second half when Nina and him are going to the DACA rally, et cetera. I found that to be a, a really emotional moment as, as you know, as someone, not like I can sit here and relate to Sonny at all, but like someone who like was really excited about the idea of going to college, getting this sort of like fresh start to do, like to explore something I want to explore. And him having this like really emotional, personal moment, realizing that's going to be really difficult, if not impossible for him to do. And a sort yeah. of visceral reaction that he had to that at that rally, I, I just you know that actually really hit hit me pretty hard. Um, and I thought that you know Gregory is it yeah Gregory Diaz the fourth who plays Sonny. I think he did a really good job showing that in what is otherwise a fairly minor role, um, sort of almost a, almost as a complimentary foil to to Usnavi to Anthony Ramos's character, but a really quite enjoyable one. And then you know he has this big emotional moment that sort of came out of nowhere for me that I really appreciated a lot. Yeah, I mean, look, of course, there will be some people who will complain that the movie doesn't do more than scratch the surface when it comes to the political aspect, which it doesn't, right? It's it's, sure. it's barely scratching the surface on... But that's not what this movie's trying to do. But that's yeah, not right. exactly. That's yeah. not what this movie is at all. That's just, you know, go go <laughs> that, go see a different movie if that's what you're looking for. Like, you, yeah. this is, this is uh, you know, I mean, I appreciated that they even threw any of that stuff in there at all because I don't think that the whole, like, rally scene or anything is in the musical from um and yeah. you know they they specifically use the word dreamers in here um you know a couple times to you know refer to um you know the like sunny the undocumented immigrants right which you know which i really the, doubt was the language that would have you know if it was in the music no they like, they talked more about DACA. they talked yeah. more i think about daca when the musical was written um but now dreamers is like yeah again more in the zeitgeist so that was something that was updated yeah i mean also, the little funny tweaks that it made to like update the film from like to that like to update from the musical. Talking about the Tiger John Woods Wick. thing, <laughs> the Tiger. Oh Woods yeah, thing. that. Some the John Tiger Wick Woods. They changed too. it from Donald Donald Trump in that the the song originally said Donald Trump and I on the links and he's my caddy and now it says Tiger Woods Tiger. and I on the links and he's my caddy just because yeah we don't we don't need that in our life. Yeah, I don't know what they said instead of John Wick before in that particular yeah. moment, and but that was so funny. I was like, that it's was so weird, weird, like the little small things that they changed to make it I, 2021 or 2020. One, one more thing I do want to say before we wrap up is that um, the only other problem I, I had, like, and this is more minor compared to like the Nina thing, which I feel like was my one main, main concern, but the frame narrative of Usnavi telling the oh story God, to like yeah. the little the kid, it's very confusing. Like, it like I, it really seems to be in the movie for no other purpose except for there to be like this kind of like twist. twist ending, right? Yeah. Because you think that he's had, you know, he's moved to the Dominican Republic, obviously. Um, but then, you know, in the, in the end, it turns out he was in, you know, he was in the bodega the whole time telling this to his kid and some of the other yeah. neighborhood kids. Um, the real bodega which, was the friends we made along the way. I, it's it's you know it's a little confusing the way that they peel that back but i will say like the the one thing is that like you know he goes into the bodega right before he's about to leave and they've painted that mural for him which is which the is beach cool. that we see yeah. so i i i mean i liked that part of it of yeah. like oh well it's not just totally out of nowhere that they were showing us this beach this this beach is there in a sense it is just a painting yeah. on the wall it is not the actual place where he is there's also i don't know if you caught this scott i I somehow I did just because I thought it was so freaking weird that there was this like the the crab in the earlier scene 
do you remember the crab from one of the early cutbacks? So you know so. the green the green crab that they talk about Sonny painting in the corner of the mural. Okay, vaguely, yeah. That green yeah, yeah, crab is that. earlier. Yeah, so that there is a green crab crawling wow. off of the side of the Easter book, eggs. Of the cart. Yeah, later on, um, I appreciated that. It drove me a little crazy that that's how they decided to to like unspool that and say yeah. actually he decided to stay. I think that you could like probably just completely do away with him telling the story to the kids um, at all. Just like cut that out of the movie entirely and probably be fine. There's one more Easter egg, which of course we have to mention, which is that yeah. um, the old music when Jimmy Smith's is on the phone. Um, oh my God. Yeah, was... is, is, which song is it? It's, it's King George's song, I believe. Yeah. From you, Hamilton. You, you, you'll, uh, be you'll, you'll be back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is so good. Movie. Also, because that's like one of my favorite songs from Hamilton too. Yeah. I just, I was. Catholic. Yeah, it's da 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 da. Uh, that's exactly. yep. that's the, yeah. the the part you hear in the. Absolutely cackled during that, and I I was proud because when I started laughing, he can't help himself laughing too. So I was I was laughing like, before it was cool. It's like Tarantino putting you know red apple cigar cigarettes or something in his movies. You know, like his own creations. Yeah, I mean, the last thing on talking about Easter eggs and and you know your own movies, I think going back to something that I made a joke about in my letterbox review is that I'm like sitting here during the, during the, during the credit scene, making a joke about how like, you know, big movies don't need to have post credit scenes to like start to build universes. And man, joke was on me. <laughs> says Paragua guy. The Paragua universe. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The, the Miranda verse is alive and well, Scott. It has a post-credit scene. I was just waiting, though, for him and Christopher Jackson to break out into a rap battle or something like that. Would have been on. Brand. It would have been so much more fun. But I guess you know, like he gets to dunk on the Mister Softy yeah. at the end. Yeah, uh, it was a fun kind of stinger scene at the end. I don't know why we needed it other than to get a laugh about it. Maybe like some like I don't know some like half-hearted commentary on the need for post-credit scenes in the modern and modern movies, but. Any other I, thoughts I wouldn't read that? that much into it. Yeah. Uh, maybe, John M, maybe John M. Chu is trying to show the MCU that he can do a post-credit scene. He's got to get some of that. I don't know. The John M. Chu universe. Or something. The, the, yeah. the John M. I mean, universe. He's, he's going to do the first MCU musical, guaranteed. I mean, he's doing Wicked next, right? So that's his next film, I think. Is that right? Oh, boy. I think so. I remember that being. Boy, no, no pressure there. No pressure there. But all, I mean, like that's a great choice. Though. Like if you're, it, you know, this is one of the biggest musicals of all time. If you're going, if you're going to have, you know, if if you're going to do it for the big screen, you want to get it right. And so far, John M. Chu has shown that he can get it right. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that uh, that's a film, right? That's a musical that will not have any problems getting traction at the box office, unfortunately, unlike this one. Because that's the kind of note that I want to, I don't want to leave it on too sour of a note, but to kind of dovetail off a conversation we already started to have even before we started talking about the review is that, you know, the truth is, is that this film is not performing at the box office up to, up to analyst expectations. And I say analyst expectations because we don't know what Warner Brothers' expectations were internally. It very well may have met expectations internally for Warner Brothers. They could be very pleased with the 11 million-ish return, 12 million-ish return, but expectations sort of going into the weekend were 20 million plus uh, opening weekend of the box office. In fact, you know, one thing not to not to pile too much on is that a Quiet Place Part Two in its third weekend this past weekend actually outperformed in the heights at the box office, um, which I found to be pretty remarkable personally. I thought that was pretty surprising that uh, that that movie had such strong legs compared to In the Heights. 
But that being said, I think that there's a lot of potential, like you were alluding to earlier as well, Scott, that this really could build. Um, not that it's going to have a better second weekend than a first weekend. I don't think that's going to necessarily be the case. But I do think that it's the kind of movie where you might not see as much of a drop-off you know, in its preceding weekends. As that's opposed how it to other films. Yeah, look, we, this time next week we come back and say and look completely stupid in this film and just completely created in the second weekend. Um, but I think that it would it, it has the potential. Maybe HBO Max hurts its legs even more just because once you get the word of mouth, you can just turn it on on the TV. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but hopeful, I'm, I'm hopeful that this but, film is able to still do something in the long people run. See, people seem to be having a lot of issues with the HBO Max interface on the TVs. Uh, I've seen a lot really? of complaints that about real? that on, on Twitter. Yeah, no. I have the occasional bugs and stuff on uh, on my computer, but like their library is just so good, especially when it comes to movies. Like they have so many movies. and TV shows, Scott. Frankly, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, but <laughs> I, I mean, mo- movies strictly movie wise, they probably have the best lineup. Yeah, it's probably a toss up between them and Netflix, right? And to and to be, no, yeah, pro- probably <laughs> Netflix. Yeah. Man, I'm surprised you even know what Tubi is. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm I'm all over that Tubi when I need to be. Yeah, I don't know. I just view it. As, it's such a it's such a different player, right? Just being completely active. Yeah. Well, you know, I have my Just Watch, where you know it'll show you every everything, every yeah. streaming service where something is available, and sometimes something is only available on Tubi, and I need to watch it for trivia or something. I don't really have anything else to add. I hope this film, you know, has legs at the box office. I think it'll be really awesome if it did. It seems like it has the potential to. Maybe it's the wrong season for it, though, Scott. Maybe this is the kind of film that would actually do better in like a holiday release when you there's not like nice fun things to do outside. We'll see. We'll see what West Side Story does. Obviously, it's more of an established, you know. Yeah, that's like way name. more accessible. You but. have Steven Spielberg, um, you know, his name also, attached to it. If that still carries any, you know, weight. I think it 100 percent still carries. Weight. I think Absolutely. it does. Like, I don't think people who are like 60 and 70 years old are going to see In the Heights in the theaters, but like they'll probably go yeah. see West Side Story in the theaters, right? Um, both because it's that kind of musical, but also Steven Spielberg, which actually brings me to my last point before we do actually officially wrap things up here is that, you know, I think one of the, also one of the confusing things is that like, this is viewed as like, Oh, this is like such an awesome musical, like mu- like a musical for people who really love musicals. Like, I'm not sure this, this is actually a musical that like appeals to like the broad music, like audience of people who love musicals, right? Like this is like not a traditional musical. It's like very much like a modern hip hop, mo- like, if, if your, like, favorite movie of all time is, like, Singing in the Rain, like, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to love In the Heights. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, I mean, it's the same stylistically as Hamilton, and everyone loves Hamilton. So, like, I, I don't but know. Like, I, feel, I, feel like, yeah. I feel like he's found – I understand, like, on paper, yeah, like a hip-hop musical with some Latin influence. But, like, I feel like he's found a way to make that universal because – the songs are catchy. The storytelling is good. The writing, like the lyrics are yeah. good. It just like, it pops. Right. And people, I mean, Hamilton's just such a phenomenon. I mean, like, the truth is like the music's not as good as Hamilton. I mean, that's like no, such a ridiculous not. bar. It's like such a ridiculous yeah. bar, obviously, but like, it's just, it's just the truth. And I wonder if like Hamilton, is just like such a, such like a unicorn, like such a phenomenon that like the average person would still prefer the greatest showman, that kind of musical or West side story, which is obviously something very different. Um, with like a long track record in history, then something that's like not like similar to Hamilton, but not quite as good. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Just, a, just a thought, just a speculation. I wonder. I'm super into that, but I'm also not someone who like loves musicals. Like, you know, carte blanche. Like well, I'm look, sure I enjoy have... musicals, but I don't seek them out. 
you know, we have Tick, Tick, Boom. We have Dear Evan Hansen. We have West Side Story. There's going to be plenty of yeah. chances this year to see, to show that musicals can still do traction at the box office. And which musical is the best by box office standards? Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure clear, that is Story. the metric. That is the yeah. metric. Absolutely. What has the Well, best? look, I, I think that if we, we could all safely bet that West Side Story will be the one that performs best at the box office. I would, I would say so. We'll see how that develops. Anyway, Scott, let's get to the wrap up here. What's your favorite scene or moment or song? We can just do what's your favorite song? How about that? We'll mix it up this time. What's your favorite song? Oh, I mean, it's the opening number. The opening number is wonderful. It's the song that's always stuck out to me from the musical from the first time I like, you know, checked out a few songs again, back when I was just getting into Hamilton. But I think it's it's really well staged. Uh, You know, I like, again, like sort of the introduction to the whole neighborhood and the bodega and the first meeting of uh, that we see of, of uh, Vanessa and Usnavi where they're like uh, next to the soda thing and like, it's you so know, doing breaths and stuff. No, I loved it. It's cute. Um, and, so you know, Tori Hawkins and everyone coming in and, you know, giving him a hard time trying to get him to ask her out. Um, and, you know, it, it's fun. Again, you, you meet all the characters. Um, it's a catchy, it's a super catchy song everyone sort of gets their little moment in the song uh, and it has a big finish there in the streets. Right. It's like, you know, everyone's singing and dancing and then bang, it hits us in the Heights and we're off and running. It has the window shot. It has the best shot in the movie. It does. Yeah. And it, yeah, and that's, a, I mean, that's such a wonderful, <laughs> that's just like such a wonderful, um, a wonderful piece. I think if I, if I, I would also go with that one. If we're being honest, um, I think that's probably the one that that most people would go for. Again, it's such a bummer that they put that out on YouTube before that they showed that whole the whole first song on YouTube beforehand. But if I had to choose another one, I think it'd be a toss up between the pool scene, which I think is kind of honestly, it's the next biggest spectacle or the I mean, I'm forgetting the name of it right now. Is it when the sun goes down? It's Benny and it's Benny and and, um, and Nina that sounds right on the side of the building. Yeah, I think it's when yeah. the sun goes down. Um, yeah, I there. thought. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say I just thought that 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 was, again, like that was I think the most I could hope for from this character of Benny. Like in terms of like that's the best it could have been with what he was given. Uh, like I just don't think that it could have been any better than that, unless something had been changed on the page or in the in the narrative development. Um, I felt very fulfilled as much as I could with that character and that moment. And it's a really good number. It's a it's a softer number. To the in the heights which is obviously the, the grand set piece yeah um and you know we didn't necessarily mention it but there's some like cool like very visually imaginative moments in the movie too i think like you Absolutely. know that sequence you're talking about has them walking on the side of the building and things like stuff that, that you couldn't also, do in a, in, a th- in the theater right ninety six thousand has them like doing little like telestrator drawings basically of like yeah. um you know like golf clubs and stuff they're talking about in the songs on screen um, really which cool. is fun yeah. And there's a few others too that I'm just not, that are not jumping into my there's mind. There's a staircase. Has, there's a staircase. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so that yeah, again, a cool way to bring it to life on the big screen. Absolutely, and and I think that's what I appreciated as much as I'm someone who sat here last year for like three or four or five different movies and said you don't need to to make something like adapted to the screen uh, to justify its existence outside of the theater. That also I also appreciate it when you take something out of the theater and you do something with it that. Just like justifies it even more, right? Doesn't mean that you couldn't have done in the theater. And these are the moments that stuck out to me. All right, Scott, score out of 10. Look, the movie isn't perfect, as I've said. Um, 
and you know there's a there's a couple complaints I have with it, but it does get a boost for the theater experience. So nine point yeah. five, it's a wonderful movie and absolutely one of the best of the year. Yeah, I think this is like one of those films that like, you know, I'll, I'll never know what it would be like to watch Avengers Endgame, you know, on for the first time on Disney Plus as opposed to like for the first time in the theater. I'll just like never know how different the experience would have been. But if I really think back and think about movies that just like, man, I think I can't think of a movie that gets a bigger bump from being in a theater. I think it's just like, there are so many, I think there are like genuinely a lot of critiques you could make. Not all that are like debilitating in any way, but there's like a lot of critiques I think you could make this movie. Many of which we made here on the podcast, I think in the last uh, you know, 50, 55 minutes or so. But you could I, destroy this movie piece by piece if you want it. No, I'm, like, I'm sure I'm sure you could for parts of it. Um, but I just think it's such a joy, right, to see in the theater. And so I think that this movie really, like, really significantly, it's like one, one and a half whole point bump uh, in the theater. So I've tried to, like, account for that a little bit in my score. Um, and I'm giving it an 8.0. I think that it is still a, wow. a huge Whoa. joy. I mean, low. It's still, like, my third or fourth highest rated movie of the year, probably, but um it's a huge joy to see right like it's a huge joy to see in the theater and uh i don't think you can go wrong if look here's what i've said to a couple people absolutely go see it in a theater but if you for some reason your only choice is between watching it on hbo max or not watching it at all then of course you should watch it on hbo max but the theater is definitely the preferred experience here yeah it's the preferred experience and it also supports and you know frankly is as sad as it is that this is the case not only does it 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 supports the making of these types of culturally diverse movies in the future like for years and decades and decades you know people like anthony ramos couldn't lead a major a major blockbuster hollywood movie because they he wasn't white right like those people just like couldn't lead movies for that reason and so getting the support on movies like project is really important um so if you can and you're interested and you have the ability to go see this in a movie versus watching it on HBO Max, you should do that. And I think that you'll enjoy the experience. Um, if not, HBO Max is there. All right. Let's just about do it for our discussion of In the Heights. We're going to take a very short break. And when we return, we'll be talking about some recent news, a couple new movies and their casts being announced. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As alluded to before the break, we have a couple pieces of news to talk about before we get out of here. Scott, why don't you talk about Garth David's next film? Yeah, uh, so this is the next film from the esteemed director of Lion and Mary Magdalene and Garth Davis. Um, but I'm a more Lion fan. Lion's a great movie. Okay, well, I haven't seen it, so I can't say. But, um, but yeah, no. Tellin, right? It is, yeah. I think it was yeah. Best Picture Nicole Kidman? nominated, maybe. Yeah. Um, it got several Oscar nominations. But anyway, he's got a new movie coming out, and normally that wouldn't be a big deal based on, you know, again, his <laughs> past credits. However, the cast has made it a big deal. Um, and Saoirse Ronan, Paul Mescal, and Lakeith Stanfield have all been attached um, to this movie, which is going to be called Foe. It is a science fiction thriller uh, based on a novel written by Ian Reed, and the uh, plot description um, that um, we have so far is 
The film is a taut, sensual, psychological mind-bender set in the near future where corporate power and environmental decay are ravaging the planet. I could just keep dramatically reading this, but um, basically it sounds like Paul Mescal and Saoirse Ronan are going to play a uh, married couple. The key Stanfield is going to play this kind of stranger that comes into their lives um, and uh, lets them know that Paul Mescal has been, you know, chosen to do space travel, to go to the space station. And then there's some kind of mind-bending element that they really aren't letting on very much about, at least in, you know, what I was able to read about something that's going to happen to Saoirse Ronan's character on Earth while he is gone. Um, I'm sure if you what look... Is this a Shyamalan into, film? Yeah, I don't know. But I'm sure if you look into it more, you could probably find out exactly what's going on since this was based on a novel. Um, and Ian Reid, I forget what else he's written, but it's a it's a name that I, I definitely recognize. Um, but um, did he write Atonement? I think he might have, but... Um, Anyway, I'm excited for this movie with this cast. Um, you know, Paul Mescal is obviously someone we've talked about a lot over the past year um, with him being uh, one of the leads in Normal People. And, you know, we kind of wondered where do these two stars, where do him and Daisy Edgar Jones go from here? Um, Paul Mescal, of course, is going to be in that uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal movie um, that's coming out later this year. Um but now he has a genuine leading role that he's been cast in in this movie. And of course, Daisy Edgar Jones is going to be in where, when the, where the Crawdads Sing, um, the you know adaptation of that huge bestseller, playing the lead role there. So look, they've both got chances to prove that they can um, you know be stars outside of normal people. And I'm excited for that. And of course, I'm always excited uh, for Saoirse Ronan and Lakeith Stanfield in the movie. Um, they're two of the best movie stars Um you know, that are not just movie stars, but also great, you know, s s fantastic actors um, on top of just being, you know, movie stars. And um, so I'm, I'm excited to see what they can bring to um, this movie, which sounds very intriguing from its uh, plot description. Um, again, not in love with like the directorial choice on this, but if he's gotten these people to be attached to it, um, then there may be something. Look, Scott, I, I think that anything that says psychological thriller, science fiction, Paul Mescal, Keith Stanfield, Saoirse Ronan are enough buzzwords to get me going. But I'm going to have to say, I'm going to call you out as being a fake I'm thinking of ending things fan because Ian Reid wrote I'm thinking of ending things. That's what he wrote, of course. I knew that. I knew I read, you read the book. I did. I did. Uh, well, yeah. You so remember you know the author of every book that you've re read, Scott. <laughs> I, I mean, you read this book last year. I can read. The, I can remember the book, I authors of the books that I read last year. Well, look, I, I I remembered that I knew the name. I know. I know. I'm just I'm just messing with you. Um, so he's only published two books, right? So I'm thinking of anything. This was his first book, Foe, which is the name of the. Obviously, I, did you say the name of the book? That's the name of the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ian That's the second Ewan book. Wrote, wrote Atonement. Sorry, I just had to say that his name was Ian, but it was Ian McEwen. We've cleared Scott of all culpability of getting the wrong Ians here. We've, yeah. we've made amends. Uh, but yeah, Ian Reid uh, wrote this book. Only 200 pages. It's a really quick read, apparently, I guess. Uh, really short. Well, book. that's how um, I'm thinking of ending things is, too. It's like maybe even under two, 200 pages. But yeah, wow. It's very short. Um, yeah. yeah, but I mean, interesting thing maybe to check out. It's one of, If it's a short read, it might be worth checking out because there is this big twist. I wonder. Always begs the question, though. Like, should you watch the film first or should you read the book first, which is going to be the better experience? But yeah, I mean, this I, cast, I think, I think it's going to be the film's going to be a pretty good experience with this cast. Yeah, and I'm thinking of ending things kind of had the same like shroud of mystery over where it's like, 
oh, there is a twist, but we're not really gonna, you know, like explain much about what's going on here. Um, like, you know, they they deliberately left you in the dark um, for a lot of the book and the movie. And so maybe we're gonna get a similar situation here. I mean, I loved it. God did. <laughs> I did not love that film. That is a factual statement. But moving on to things that I think we can both agree that we were both excited about and we have loved their past work. Uh, we also got some casting news about the next films. I say next films. That doesn't mean anything for either of these actors and actresses, to be honest, because they're in like three or four upcoming things. But we have another film announcement for Annie Taylor-Joy and Ray Fiennes, um, both of which who have very busy 2021s and 2022s for that matter, I think, because I think The King's Man might have been pushed back to 2022, which I believe Ray Fiennes is the is one of the leads in. Of course, he's also going to be in No Time to Die, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then we've talked ad nauseum about Annie Taylor-Joy's upcoming slate of movies on this. But we can add another to that list with um, with an adaptation, I believe, of a movie or of, of a book called The Menu. It's a dark comedy. Um, I'm actually now not even sure if it's if it's a book or not. But the project is called The Menu. It is a dark comedy. It is starring Annie Taylor-Joy and Ray Fiennes, and it is being directed by Mark, Mark Milode, which may not mean anything to a lot of people here, but he, as someone who is currently watching Succession, um, which, spectacular season two, I started season two, that thing is unbelievable, how good it is in, in season two. I thought season one was good, season two is even better, and Mark Milode is one of the main uh, director's creative forces behind Succession. So seeing that name a week ago, two weeks ago, wouldn't have meant anything to me, but seeing it now makes me think, wow, that's really interesting how this is gonna translate, especially with Succession, which is a drama, but also some dark humor involved with it as well, um, with the, sort of the family dynamics in that show. I think this is something that is really exciting. And Annie Taylor-Joy is playing one half of a couple um, that is, so this film is set in the eccentric world of culinary culture, centering on a young couple, the woman of whom is played by Annie Taylor-Joy, who visits an exclusive restaurant on a remote island where an acclaimed chef Ray Fiennes, um, has prepared a lavish tasting menu. So that's sort of the setup. It is a psychological thriller, dark comedy, which is like a requirement, I think, for all Annie Taylor-Joy's movies. And hijinks commence. I just want to say I'm glad that they're not playing the couple. I'm glad that Ray oh, God, Fiennes yeah, is not going to play the male uh, you know, uh, person in this relationship. But yeah, now it begs the question, who is it going to be? And how can, Paul, I, Paul yeah, Mescal how can I... Paul Mescal would be a great pick. Yeah. How can I get myself in that role? I guess I'm really asking. <laughs> Maybe but, Annie yeah. Taylor-Joy will pull some strings and get her real life boyfriend who I've, you know, no one hasn't ever done anything irrelevant in his life. Yeah, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in my mind. But um, yeah. but yeah, no. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, like you said, I, I we've talked ad nauseum about the things she's going to be in. But it's great. Like it's it's great that she just keeps getting linked to things over and over. I mean, you know. Last night I in mean, Soho, Furiosa. She's probably uh, like she's David the hottest actress, movie. the hottest young actress in Hollywood. Which, yeah, which is crazy because I just feel yeah. like, you know, what has she done that's been big? I mean, she did the Queen's Gambit, right? She did a Netflix show about chess, and now all of a sudden Emma. she's just like bawling out in every single like, um, you know, big movie, big interesting movie project for like the next. Um, year or two and she you know she doesn't have the look of a conventional like movie star um, I just think it's it's great that you know we're in a place in the film landscape where someone like her can be like a, a yeah. massive name 
Yeah, I think it's one of those things where she got these like like really popular indie directors' attentions with like things like Emma and Split and obviously the follow up with Glass, Robert and Eggers, the Queen's Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, Robert Eggers. I should mention that. And Robert Eggers. Corey Finley. Like she, you know. She got the attention of these people. She got. Now, she, obviously, she's also in Robert Eggers' next movie, The Northman. She's in last. Like, she got Edgar Wright's attention through these projects. And, and like, Northman once you're on, Ed, once you're on Edgar Wright's radar, like, you just like you kind of have like you've reached the mainstream. I, here's what I think we're really saying, Scott. Is she did good movies. She st- she started off her career doing good movies, even stuff that was really small. I mean, nobody knew who the hell Robert Eggers was when he did The Witch. Like, this is some yeah. freaking weird movie set in Most like people the still don't know who Robert Eggers century, is now. Fifteenth century New England. <laughs> Nobody yeah. else famous is in this movie. It's um, not 15th but, century. That's a little early, right? <laughs> oh, uh, it might even be set earlier than that. I don't know. Well, but it's for, set Columbus really came to the America in fourteen ninety two. It's set Columbus. really early. Yeah, that's fair, probably. <laughs> but it's set really. It's set really early. Um, maybe yeah. I'm thinking about um, the Northman. That's set like really early. But um, but yeah, no. I mean, the the point is, no one would have you know expected that project to take off. But it's a good, it's a very good movie, right? And so, yeah. you know, she attached herself to that early on. Um, you know, the Shyamalan stuff, Split was kind of his big comeback, right? So you get yourself yeah. in there, you get associated with that. Um, that's a good thing. And then, yeah, you know, you cut your teeth on other indie stuff like Thoroughbreds, which isn't, you know, something that everyone is going to be aware of. But for people, you know, who it does in it the with, industry. like in the industry. Yeah. yeah, for 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 people who do check it out, like it's not one that you forget, right? Like maybe you don't like it, but like you know, it's I, it's and very arresting, like, and those two performances stand out. And I think her atypical personality, or like the persona, or vibes, or aura, however you want to describe it, that she gives off, I think that actually helps her out a lot. Like it makes her much less generic. Um, like unfortunately, like even though I think these are amazing actresses, like I think Saoirse Ronan, Florence Pugh insert young like even thomasine mckenzie right like they are of a similar vibe i think of like that they put off not that they are interchangeable but there's something less distinct about them than i think with annie taylor joy who i think is just like this just very unique personality and it has this very unique vibe that sort of you know she doesn't fit a lot of these like traditional roles like you just like you'd never expect her to be like the the star lead in like the next rom-com right like you just like would never see that but like if that happened to like Saoirse Ronan, I don't think you'd like really bad an eye very much. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that, like, she sets herself apart in that way, I think, for some of these more eccentric, interesting type projects. Yeah, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, and it's why she has attracted a lot of, not just fans, but, like, stands. Like, of course, I am yeah. one of them, so I can say that. Um, but because she's offering something a little bit different, I think, you know, that gets people more on her team. Yeah, I mean, I mean, she reminds me a lot of Jennifer Lawrence, right? Like, she, maybe Jennifer Lawrence is, like, a little bit more, like, rewind 12 years, like, Winter's Bone time period, right? Like, Jennifer Lawrence doing these indie projects to get famous or whatever. It's just, will will her rise precipitate a fall that Jennifer Lawrence did by doing all these, like, mega popular movies, right? Who knows? I hope not. Yeah. Because um, that doesn't really seem like the kind of work that... that Annie Taylor, like, she's not, an ex, she's not in, the, no, in the, you know, the, the MCU X-Men movie yet, so... She's doing the right thing, right? She is upping the. I mean, I guess she was in an X Men movie, technically, but um, she, she is upping the ante in the right to the right level, right? Like she's not going out and doing 
MCU movies and stuff like that, but she is doing movies like Ed, like an Edgar Wright movie, like a George Miller Furiosa, right? Which are going to be big big blockbusters, but where there's also more room for They're all know, creativity. They're all and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, George Miller is like probably like the biggest like blockbuster auteur. Not, I mean, like action blockbuster. Uh, I mean, Tarantino might be probably even bigger than him in terms of like blockbuster, like high budget stuff. But like, I mean, George Miller is, you know, can you imagine George Miller doing a Mission Impossible movie, Scott? I can't imagine him doing anything other than a Mad Max movie for me. I mean, obviously he did Babe, Pig in the Happy. City, but didn't he and, do Happy uh, Feet too? Happy Feet too, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that just seems like yeah. way more in his wheelhouse. I don't know that I would <laughs> want to see George George Miller doing a uh, yeah. Mission Impossible movie, if we're being quite honest. I'm surprised Tom Cruise doesn't work with him. To be honest, I mean, like, I'm just shocked he hasn't like tried to work with him. Yeah. But there's still time. Maybe maybe George Miller will replace Doug Lyman in space. <laughs> maybe so. Else. All right, Scott. I said that we've talked about Andy Taylor Joy ad nauseum on this podcast, and we can add this podcast to another one where we've talked ad nauseum about her. Uh, too, but that should just about do it for episode 146 of Some Like It, Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Um, yeah, I do want to say that I com- I don't know why I forgot this earlier when we were talking about In the Heights, um, but I was just scrolling on Twitter and I saw it and because I, I literally looked this up just the other day. And uh, but we were talking about Melissa Barrera and the fact that, um, you know, well, where does her career go for here from here? Well, the answer is that her career goes to Scream 5 uh, because she is going to have a fairly major role in Scream 5, which t- just today, I believe, was announced that. Um, the movie, it has been finished filming. It is planning to to be released on January the 14th of 2022. Um, and God. from what that I understand, buried. that's not good. <laughs> from what I understand, her and uh, and Jenna Ortega, who you might remember from season two of You, um, are going to play sisters. I think that might be sort of the main characters in the younger cast. Obviously, you know, Neff Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, all of them are coming back. Um, but um, I sounds like she is going to have a pretty substantial role there. But anyway, I'm excited about yes, it. No, uh, Neff Campbell is the killer. Please no. Um, I, I, I'm I'm cautiously excited about it because you know, of course, this will be the first one Wes Craven hasn't directed. This is going to be the only the second one that Kevin Williamson has hasn't written. The other one being Scream Three, which is the least good of all of them, but still good. Um, so, but, you know, but they got, they got, you know, radio silence, the, um, ready or not directors. So, I mean, good fill in. You got everybody coming back. Let's ride. Let's ride. Yeah. I mean, look, if you, if you look at like indie niche, like fun horror movies of the last few years, like ready or not's up there with like, you know, happy death day, et cetera. Like, sure. Hard, Great movie. You know, if you're trying to make, if you're trying to make a fun spoofy, like horror movie, I think that radio silence is a pretty good duo. I agree. All right, Scott. That was uh, that's the first time in a while you've actually had a me- like a really substantive parting thought for us. Usually, we've really exhausted all of our, <laughs> yeah. all of our talking. In the well, podcast, I just I just caught that on Twitter, and I was like, "Well, we spent this whole thing about Melissa Barrera. Well, will she ever do another movie again? Yeah, she's actually going to be in a pretty big. Movie I did not say that she would never do another movie. No, I, I know I was yeah. exaggerating yeah. what our point was because I mean I was going along with you too. So we're both guilty. Yeah. Like I don't think Scream Five is going to be the platform for her to catapult into greater into greater heights, and with that, I'll walk right off this podcast with that pun. All right, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? 
Or on Letterboxd. At, we don't even talk about Twitter anymore. Who cares? Letterboxd. At Scarby Dent on both. Yeah. At Shelton2013 for me as well. On both, if you do care about Twitter still. Uh, please follow our podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash mediapluckpods. Um, check it out. See if there are some reward tiers that you'd uh, be able to contribute to. And if not, that's uh, totally okay. You can still find us on all your podcast feeds where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, etc. We'll be back next week with a review of Pixar's next film, the summer coming-of-age comedy drama Luca. Until then, though, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. See you down the road.